morning. Hi, the reading this morning is from Exodus 13. If you want to follow that in your Bibles or devices, or uh, there's a few pew Bibles in it as well. I'll just give you a second to look that up. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, no leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens into the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when it's in time to come to your sons asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds for when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on, from Succoth and a camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them day by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. 
The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from the people. Amen. If you can catch sight of that reading, I think you'll find that helpful to follow along. Hopefully, you've had one of the A5 sheets as you came in where that will be on there. If not, you can feel free to to go up and get one. In chapter 12, Israel took their very first footsteps into freedom. And we saw that God delivers on his promises. People don't like to be distinct, do they? I don't think people in general really like to be different. And that is the only reason that I can possibly find to explain the phenomena of the mullet. You know the haircut. Business up top, party at the back. And somehow, almost inexplicably, through the 80s and early 90s, people actually had these haircuts en masse. And I can only think that that could be because people don't like to be different. That at a certain tipping point where enough people do it, you don't want to be the one who hasn't. That's why every fad sort of thrives, isn't it? People don't want to be different. They don't want to be distinct. They want to fit in. That's a very human thing. Well, in chapter 13 this morning, our idea is this, that God's people are to be distinct. They're to look and to live differently to the nations around them. And there's three ideas that get across that idea of God's people being called to be distinct. Firstly, we... See in verses 1 to 2 and 11 to 16, picks it up again, that what's yours is mine, God says. That the people are, secondly, to remember from where they came. And thirdly, they're called to look to God to show them the way. If you live with other people, then perhaps you know the problem of setting food aside for later. You put something in the fridge and through the day you sort of think about it and it sort of gets you partly through the working days think, oh yeah, I can't wait to get hold of that later on. Only for some scoundrel to take it from your mitts. This uh, here was an iconic scene in the sitcom Friends and Ross loses it because someone ate my sandwich. And here we realize that what's Israel's is God's. That they are to set apart their firstborn to God. Look at verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Consecrate means just to set apart, to set to one side. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. The firstborn are mine because I've saved you. You might ask why it's oddly specific, I suppose, isn't it? Just the firstborn there. Is this just that sort of favoritism of the eldest sort of always think that they're the best and here it is entrenched at the very beginning? Well, it's linking this very clearly back to Israel's firstborn generation being saved in the Passover. The firstborn would later go on to be important and significant because they were the ones who would inherit the will in the family and they were the ones who ultimately would take the responsibility for the family on if the father died or moved away for some reason. 
But this idea is used, actually, of Israel by God. Back in chapter 4, verse 22, God has said, Israel is my firstborn son. The firstborn are mine, because I've saved you. You might ask, well, how can God do that? How can he ask something like that or demand something like that? Well, he has saved the firstborn here, and by consequence, all the other future generations as a result, in the Passover. And the idea we thought of was that it was a lamb's life for your life. And so he calls for them to be set apart. And then Moses picks up this idea in verse 11. He goes on to another point from verse 3 to 10, and we'll come back to that. He says, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, this is God speaking now, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you'll not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And even for their working animals here, the children are set apart, but even the working animals set apart here too. But the idea going on in these verses here is that God is not only helping Israel to leave Egypt. That's one thing, isn't it? That he's helping them leave a land of suffering and oppression, but he's also delivering them and settling them in a good land. And that comes back to his promise. We thought about it last week that he had promised Abraham, and he's coming good on this promise, that he would make a great people under his rule and in his place. And you might ask, well, how can God do that? The idea that's being developed again and has already been said explicitly by the Lord is that all the earth is his. And that he is God in all the earth. And that the Canaanites and those other peoples who own that land currently, or at least live in it, were simply bad tenants. It was not their land. This practice has a cost, doesn't it? Even their working animals, their donkeys, are either to be ransomed and redeemed or to be killed. That's a cost. That's a sacrifice. How can he ask that? Well, you owe your lives, Israel, and your freedom to God. And so this recognizes that all that you have has come from him. And then there's that command to teach children. Verses 14 to 15. When in time... To come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem." Parents, we've seen this before, we'll see it again, have that primary responsibility to teach their children their faith. 
And so that gives us two really dead simple sort of things to do, doesn't it? That firstly, there's that need to equip yourself to be able to teach them. Then there's the second bit, which maybe is more important, the actual doing it. You can be equipped, but it doesn't mean that you'll be doing it. There's the need for both, isn't there? Be able to teach them why they do what they do. And luckily, here we have the instructions of how to do that, and it's broken down very simply. To tell them what God did, how it happened, and what you are to do. Tells them there what God did. That God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Verse 14, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Tell them what God did. But secondly, tell them how God did that. That when Pharaoh refused, God killed the firstborn. Verse 15, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let the people go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Tell them what God did. Tell them how God did that. But then there's, what are you to do about it? They're told you are to set apart your firstborn to remember what God did. I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb and all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. I hope you see something that goes on there. And that's that the human response, the thing that we do, comes after God has rescued That's so important. Through all of this book, through all of the span of the Bible, that what you do comes after God has already rescued you. That the law comes after the exodus. That you don't do anything to earn a rescue. But that you do it because you have been rescued by God already. How can you do that? How can he command that they do this? Well, the point is that your children actually aren't your own. They're a gift from God. They're not your own. And this makes this people distinct, doesn't it? You see that there in verse 16. It should be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. God's people are to be distinct. They're to set apart their children as a recognition of God's rescue. What's yours is mine, says God. Then there's an encouragement to remember from where they came. We both love and hate a rags to riches story, don't we? We love it, but we're very hard to please. Because we ask when people go from rags to riches, when they suddenly become big celebrities, big success stories, very rich, we ask, do they remember where they came from? Do they remember their roots? Are they humble? And so celebrities go to great lengths to try to convince us that they are. And that's the background to this annoyingly catchy 90s song. Don't be fooled by the rocks that I got. I'm still, I'm still Jenny from the block. Used to have a little, now I have a lot. No matter where I go, I know where I came from. So said Jennifer Lopez. Weeks later, you see her pictured on private yachts and private flights and things, and you wonder how true that really is. But nonetheless, celebrities realise, 
we need to try to show that we remember where we came from. And here Israel are to remember from where they came. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Remember where you came from and how you escaped. You came from the land of slavery in Egypt, and you were delivered and rescued by God's hand, not yours. And in fact, if you notice, there's that same phrase four times, isn't there, in this chapter? By the strong hand of the Lord. In verse 3 and 9 and 14 and 16, it's almost as if they might just be tempted to think that somehow, just somehow, their skill or politicking or abilities had managed to play some part. But no, they're reminded by a strong hand of the Lord, you have been rescued. And he's bringing them into a new land. Today, in the month of Abib, verse 4, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. He's bringing them to a new land, a promised land, a land of opportunity and freedom. And yet, they are also leaving behind some measure of comfort. They will, not too much longer later, reflect on the beautiful cucumbers in Egypt. I think it would be so much easier to be back. They're leaving behind some comforts. They're leaving behind, certainly, a measure of certainty for the unknown. But there's also this assurance of God's blessing that's been prepared in this land that he had promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 7. And there's again a balance of truths that's going on. We've seen that before and we see it again here. That on the one hand, a wicked people who lived in that land are being driven out. And we'll find more out about them as the Bible progresses. But there had been long prior warning for these people. And that had been stubbornly refused and resisted. And they had not changed. And on the other hand, there's a justice that wicked tenants are removed. And Israel, who had suffered so much in Egypt, are now provided for. And so then we have that command about unleavened bread, don't we, in that festival. And it picks up from chapter 12 there in verses 6 and 7. And it remembers coming out with the unleavened bread due to the rush. That they hadn't had time to properly prepare their bread as usual. And so it was to remind them from where they came. But there's also a nod to the future, isn't there? Because the future generations here are saved because that first generation had been saved. For many of us, that's true as well, isn't it? If you think about it, your family, if they had not survived the Second World War, for many of us who've grown up in Britain, we obviously wouldn't in turn be here either. If one part of my family had not managed to make it to Britain from Europe, I wouldn't be here. Because the first generation is saved, you can say in a sense that all future generations are saved also. 
because they simply wouldn't be here otherwise. And that's what's happening here. And so parents, again, are compelled to teach their children. Look at verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Here's a reality, is that not teaching our children and young people is simply allowing the world to teach unopposed because discipling is happening out in the world. It's happening six days of the week. If we don't teach, we're simply allowing that to go unopposed. See, some jobs can be outsourced, can't they? And some can't. You can outsource who decorates their rooms, who teaches them to swim, who coaches them sports, who teaches them algebra, on and on. There's lots of things you can outsource. There are some things you can't outsource. You can't outsource who's going to love them, who's going to instill the values in them, who's going to discipline them, teach them the faith. Those are things that must come from us. But notice there that teaching is very personal, isn't it? Look at verse 8 there again. You should tell your son on that day. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. There's a personal reality to it. This isn't just a general truth, true of all these other people. This is what God has done for me. And all of this is to be a sign and a symbol. This was a visible, a material thing that expresses an invisible, a spiritual reality. Look at verse 9. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. This is a sign. This is a sign to others. This marks you out as my people. And so some Orthodox Jews from that day onwards and still today will literally do this, that they'll have portions of the Torah uh, strapped on their hands and uh, over their head at times to recognize this reality. They're called to have this sign of the word being close by them that others would see. It's a sign to others, but there's a memorial, or actually the word might be reminder to themselves that the word of God is to shape their hands, their eyes, and their mouths. Their hands, their actions, their eyes, their thoughts, and their mouth, their words. God's people are to be distinct and to remember from where they came by keeping this feast. And then lastly, there's this call to Look to me to show you the way. There's a guide. I wonder what some of your holidays might have been like growing up. Uh, mine were usually pretty sort of comical disasters. Uh, one trip we travelled across to France. And the problem with travelling, and you don't know this if you don't do this very often, is that an overnight ferry is cheaper. But it also means that you have to drive in the dark on the other side. And my dad was dyslexic. He could not tell left from right. He would frequently uh, confuse the instructions for red and green lights uh, as well, and is having to drive on a different side to usual. And this is not the days of Google Maps where you could just sort of punch in the postcode and it would tell you what to do, which helps me out greatly. This is the days of having to use an analog map. 
but the torch that my mum had purchased in the run-up to the trip had broken, and so she couldn't read the map. And cue panic, shouting, wrong turns, declarations we should just pull in and sleep in the car, a few tears. The one relief was the discovery that a Kinder Egg toy actually lit up uh, and could somewhat help to map read, so long as you press the belly. To which my mum keeps shouting, I'm pressing the head, I'm pressing the head. We really needed a guide. Well, here God gives the people a guide to show them the way. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Not only was the timing of the exit under God's plan, and we heard of that last time, that on the exact day that God appointed, he led them out into freedom, but also he has set the route for them to take. He doesn't take them by the shorter route because of the threat of conflict that they would have to go through in order to get through that route and the potential that they just return to Egypt because although it's bad, it might be marginally easier than fighting the Philistines. But if you're eagle-eyed and you look down to the next verse, you'll find a very surprising reason for why God does this. God led the people round by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. That's a surprising phrase to find. When you consider just a verse before, God has said he's not leading them by the way of the Philistines because they might encounter war and turn back in discouragement. This is telling us that the reason they might turn back is not that they are not equipped physically and materially. They have that equipment. The problem is mental, emotional, and spiritual. That they just might not have enough resolve to endure the battle that would come. And so the people are led inland instead the wilderness towards the Red Sea rather than along the coast and it feels like what God is doing in some ways is much like whenever you have to sort of walk with children in tow through a city and walk is a very generous term for it because it feels much more like you're sort of shepherding cats and you're sort of literally guiding them and holding on to them and pulling them you're pulling them away from oncoming cars and bicycles and dog poo and people and curbs and dogs And it feels here like God is shepherding his people, holding on to them, pulling them the right direction, his children away from danger. God graciously guides them on the route that he knows will be best for them. And there's a really simple truth here for us, isn't there? Especially for those of us perhaps struggling away in work, in study, family life that the shortest route isn't always the best in life, in work, in studies, in your faith. The shortest route isn't always the best. And you have to trust that God will guide you on that. And we get this picking up of the bones 
of Joseph here. And it's worth remembering just the very beginning of Israel's venture into Egypt. Because Israel was saved from famine at the time by the rise of Joseph in Egypt. Sold by his brothers into slavery, but having risen in Pharaoh's court, he enabled them to find relief from famine. And Egypt actually began as being a place of rescue for Israel. But after the death of Joseph, Pharaoh's rose who didn't know Joseph and treated Israel very poorly. But here is a fulfillment of Joseph's belief that he wouldn't be buried in Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. He would not be buried in Egypt, but would be buried in their own land, that God would deliver them. And then we get that amazing sign at the end, don't we? The pillar of cloud and pillar of fire and the Lord went before them by day verse 21 in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people this is incredibly supernatural and perhaps actually coming off the back of 10 miraculous supernatural plagues, this is slightly less challenging to believe now than it would otherwise be ordinarily. But here, the fire and the cloud do three things, I think, aside from the obvious. The fire and the cloud give some protection to the people. Here they are traveling through the wilderness and they could be very, very easy prey, couldn't they? The fire and the cloud provide a guide along their journey, marks out literally the way that they were to go. And the fire and the cloud are easily visible to other nations and so mark Israel out as a distinct people. Others could have seen the wanderings of Israel and I think God intends for his people's wanderings to be seen. God's people were to be distinct. And so he gives them an amazing sign that guides their way. God has saved his people from death and delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And now they are to live as his distinct people in the world. And we see that what was theirs was God's, that they owed their lives to him. We also receive new life in Jesus, and we owe our lives to him. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That might be one of the most countercultural truths to possibly state on this morning in 2023, that your body is not your own. It is not your own. It is the Lord's. It was made by him. It has been rescued by him. Israel were here, the Lord's, and they were to commit their firstborn's lives to God because God had saved them. And we respond by following God's ways, not to earn a rescue, but because he has rescued us. 
because we are now belonging to him. We give our lives to him. Secondly, Israel were to remember from where they came and who had rescued them. And it is right for us to remember who we were and who has saved us. Paul in Ephesians 2 puts it like this. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were, those of us in faith, once separated from God by sin and unbelief. But in Jesus, we have been brought near. Through his blood being spilt, ours has been saved. By a righteous representative standing in and facing the punishment we deserved, we walk free. Just as the people here were saved by the blood of a lamb, we are saved through the blood of Jesus, the one who the apostles will describe in their early interactions. This is the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. One who Paul will say, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The one who fulfills everything that that pointed towards. It is good to remember from where we came and who has rescued us. Here, they're reminded four times, by the strong hand of the Lord, you've been brought out. And you too, by the strong hand of the Lord, have been saved. But thirdly, Israel were to look to God to show them the way, and he gave them a guide, didn't he? And Jesus has come as our light, the light of the world, to help us walk in the light and to walk in life in the world in which he's placed us. He says in John chapter 8, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's not easy in life to be distinct people, is it? We don't really want to stand out. We don't want to be different amongst our friends, in our families, in our workplace, at school, at university, in our neighborhood. And Israel will struggle greatly with this idea and this calling to be distinct, to be different. We as Christians are called to be God's distinct people, living differently in the world. So, know that what is yours is God's. Your life belongs to him. Remember from where you came and who has rescued you. And look to Christ Jesus to light the way for you.